Okay, we're back at it. Um, this time I'm in the hot seat. Uh, yeah. And in some ways, this is, is kind of the mirror image of, of what... So I was just reflecting on, on what you said. And in, in many ways, it's the contact points, right? But it's the other side of the experience. Um, and I think, I think this story is, is the uglier side of, of racism in many ways. Um, but let me, just, let, me just, uh, let me just jump into it. Uh, so I had a, I had a, a very liberal upbringing, actually. Um, so, uh, you know, around the dinner table, I wasn't being indoctrinated with Diswat uh, Khafar. Um, it was it was quite the opposite. It was uh, um, my father, especially, would 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 be uh, openly critical of of the system. And um, I think if Special Branch knew about some of those family conversations, uh, they may have visited us. Um, but uh, also, like I remember, I remember dinner parties. You know, socially, would often break up or, or end on a kind of a Tense note because of my my dad's politics. So so when he gathered with his friends, he, he, you know there were there were often uh, arguments and, and tense conversations. Um, and I think he was more uh, open. Uh, you know, I don't want to speak for him, but but my sense as a young boy growing up, and my experience is kind of I think ten years prior to yours, um, yeah. ten years or so. Um, he. Yeah, I think I think some of it was came from a place of he was of working on the mines. So he was a he was an HR director on the mines, which meant that uh, there would be seasonal kind of annual wage negotiations. Um, and so he was sitting opposite um, very formidable guys. You know, guys who are senior in politics now. Um, our president, uh, Gwede Mantash. Um, who we must remember in our prayers because he's currently not well. But um, yeah. those sorts of guys, and I think, I think it's as you said, it's it's interacting with a human being uh, versus the propaganda, right? And so the yeah. the, the kind of the, the the fairy tale of 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 supremacy dissolves when you are confronted by he has a he has a human being and and he's formidable. Um, and and he breaks all the molds. Um, so so how do I do? What, what how do I reconcile these two realities? Because on the one hand I'm being told this and this story, and on the other hand I'm dealing with guys and they don't fit that mold at all. And I think that that influenced him a lot. Um, so so he just didn't buy it. Um, and 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 I think another influence on him and through the generational chain on me was my gran. Um, so my gran was a wonderful Christian lady. Uh, she just loved the Lord. Uh, so quick shout out to all the gogos there. Uh, keep yeah. going, ladies. You you have an influence that you don't even see just through quiet prayers and gospel conversations and your example. So so we love you, gogos. Keep going. Um, so my gogo was amazing in that way. She she was a widow. Um, she she raised four kids on her own. She was a nurse. Uh, she and then she was the the matron of a hostel, um, and I think I think her faith and primarily her faith, but also just that profession, you know, nursing. Um, mm. uh, it 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 draws more empathetic types, but also I think it teaches you empathy. It teaches you to relate to human beings as human beings, not as members of a group. 
So I remember she was, she, she, again, she was totally um, in her thinking, not colored by the prevailing system. Um, yeah. and, and she would openly, just gently challenge. She was not like a political person, an activist or anything, but would constantly push against it quite easily. I remember one story where she was sitting with my sister, and uh, so this must be early 90s, and they're looking at what must have been the U magazine. I can only think it was the new U magazine. Centerfold, and it's got all the Miss South Africa candidates there. So there's like 10 ladies. And my grand says to my sister, so which one do you like? Um, and my sister points, you know, to the standard Barbie, blonde hair, blue eyes. And my grand says, no, I like this one. And it's the only woman of color, you know. And, yeah. and I think she's trying to model something for, for, for my sister in that moment. And she's doing it way before it was cool for white people to say black is beautiful, right? I mean, yeah. there's no, you're not winning any street cred in the early, in the early 90s uh, for, yeah. for holding that sort of view. Um, so, so she was a great influence on us and I think a great influence on my dad as well. And then just to, just to describe this kind of environment. So my sister, the fruits of, of, of my, my dad's influence and my grand's influence, my sister, I think I must've been, I must've been 10. So she was probably 12. She writes a letter to the Groot Crocodile, to Pierre Vier himself. And she says, <laughs> He must dismantle apartheid. We still got the letter somewhere. He, he, must, he must take apartheid away because it's messing up her friendships. Um, wow. Yeah. And we got a response from the office of the president. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Promising oh, us. Don't... Say again? Have you have, why haven't you framed those letters? No, we must. They're somewhere. They start lying in some box in somebody's garage. Um, and, and he responds and he... And he, and he um, if I remember correctly, he promises some sort of change. Um, yeah. So, who knows? You know, it doesn't sound like the crocodile, but that's what the letter said, and it came from the office of the president. Um, so, yeah, so from a young age, my sister was very conscious that this was also, a, 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 this is not a, a good and right thing. Um, now, I don't say any of that to kind of put a feather in my cap. In fact, it's quite the opposite. In spite of all of that, uh, that kind of um, uh, growing up with that with that positive influence, um, I still, if I look at my own experience, I can still see the seeds of racism in my own heart, and I can still see how that was nurtured by the propaganda, by by everything that was coming at us from both 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 just at the social informal level, but also through through public media and so on. Uh, so just a few stories to to kind of bear that out. Uh, I remember like young guy, we had a felt behind our house and there's a Mercedes Benz that always used to park there in that felt, uh, an old Merc. And um, MacGyver was big in those days. So so people of my vintage know who MacGyver is. That, that was my nickname growing up, by the way. One of my nicknames. Lewis MacGyver. Yeah, my grandfather called me that because no I, I in every little corner of something that I could find. So, yeah, I mean, he was he, he was a hero. Let's let's just take a moment to acknowledge him because yeah, that guy yeah. could take a, a, a piece of chewing gum and a paper yeah. clip and turn it into a helicopter. Yeah, I mean that's yeah. that's who he was, right? So obviously that's you and I, in, our, in our various contexts, we're running around MacGyvering all over the place. Yeah, 
And one of my one of my MacGyver adventures was to go. I, I took a wire coat hanger, and I was going to break into this Merc, and then I was going to hotwire it. Right. So there I am, and I'm shoving my my wire coat hanger down the side of 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 this guy's um, prize automobile, and I'm and I'm there. And the next thing is this hand on my on my arm. Yeah. And it's not a white hand, right? And I promise wow. you, I didn't touch the ground on the way home. I, I, it's 500 meters. I just straight into my bedroom like in a flash, right? And I stayed there for three yeah. days. Now, why? Because this, uh, this person was obviously, um, it's like you said, right? So, so the, the people who came to the suburbs, to the burbs, were, were, were servants, right? So, so they were domestic helpers or they were gardeners. And so uh, this guy who I didn't know from the neighborhood, he must be from a place called Township. This is what I saw on the news, Right, so yeah. black people lived in a place called Township, and 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 they were angry, and they were burning stuff, and they were dangerous, and they were and they were they were labelled with the word terrorist, right? So in my mind, this guy must have been a terrorist, and he was going to kidnap me. That's sure. the level. Yeah, and so here's a man who's trying to protect his property. In reality, yeah, he has a young yeah. boy who's relating to him as terrorist, right? Um, sure. Who's going to do bad things to me simply because because he's black. Yeah. That's how that's how my mind processed that incident. Um, Sorry, crazy how the the narrative just changes there, where where you the villain and suddenly you become the hero, you know, and and the the guy who, who is the hero, I mean, you're stealing his car, suddenly becomes the villain because of the narrative that's perpetuated. Wow, totally, Jeez, yeah, totally, totally, yeah. So, and that's a narrative I spun in my own head because of, because that's, that's, that's those are the filters I've got, right? Um, yeah. uh, so then, so then just, I mean, just to share with my YouTube, some of your primary friends, my, mine was, was uh, similar to yours, except we'd, I can't remember any black kids at my school. So yeah. now I drive past that same school. It's totally integrated, which is a, which is a wonderful thing. But in my day, the only, again, the only black people on that campus were the ground staff. So, right, that's how you categorize people, right? So, so black people are, are, are servants and white people, you know, we, we just are. So you, you're not even thinking, you're not even really thinking about it, but those are your subliminal categories. Um, and as we, you know, on that topic of, of having servants, so we had a domestic helper. Her name was Ephesia Sempopo Mataboche. But of course, we called her Betty because white people don't bother to, you know, figure wow. out the name. So, wow. uh, so that was the name she had. She had, you know. So I think I think a lot of the uh, ladies had been, you know, spoke amongst themselves and said, "No, we must have a name. You must have your kind of your white name." You know. Yeah. You know, she's and she's a wonderful woman, and and she really did have a major hand in raising us. You know, it's the it's that story. Uh, these ladies. Raise you, but then listen to how I treat her. So, so I can remember I must have been eleven or twelve years old, and I I walk past uh, the room and I see her and she's cleaning the windows, which in our house wasn't simple because it was a second story, uh, so it was double story. And and so now you've got to reach your arm out and around the window with your with your newspaper and your window lean, and you've got to kind of do this for two hours to yeah. get the. And I come past, now this is snot-nosed, pimple-faced, maybe 12, 13-year-old kid. And I say to her, no, Betty, you're not doing that properly. You, you missed okay. the spot. You must redo it. 
you know, this is a 12 year old kid telling a, a 50 something year old uh, woman who should be worthy of all respect. No, she's not doing it properly. She must redo it. And she, she burst into tears. And in that moment, I realized, whoa, I realized I'd crossed a line somewhere that something wasn't quite right. Uh, yeah. and, I, and that I'd been computing things um, incorrectly and that there was something wrong with the way I was thinking. You know, as far as a 12-year-old can acknowledge. Um, but, but it was a big moment for me. It's, 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 it's sat with me ever since. Um, high school, uh, very few black kids in our high school. It was more integrated than the primary school because it sort of sat on a, on a ridge between two, two uh, suburbs so one very poor and one much more affluent suburb. And you had, you had kids from the rough part of town. So you had like what, kids of, of all demographics from the rough part of town. So white kids who are coming from tough upbringings and then black kids as well, but not many. Huh? And I think it must have been really hard for them because, you know, it's like, um, I don't think we like, even acknowledged that, that it must have been hard. And and the K word the K word was common currency in those days, right? Um, I don't remember ever calling any of my mates out for saying it. I don't. I didn't say it often, but I I can remember one instance in particular. I, I think I just went to drive, and a taxi driver cut me off, mm-hmm. and I just let rip in in the car. I thank God that nobody actually heard me say that, but. But I felt I was entitled to say that. It was the most hateful thing I could think of in the moment. And uh, I would have, like I said, I would have passed every test you'd given me on political correctness. Uh, I don't think ideologically I was a white supremacist, but, um, but I just felt entitled to use that word and, and, to, and to say the most hateful thing I could think of in the moment, you know. Um, so, yeah, so that, that's the reality of it. You, you see the hypocrisy. So even... Even ideologically, if I believed one thing, the practice didn't always bear that out, right? It showed, the practice showed that there was something else going on at a heart level that wasn't quite right. Uh, and then, in fact, was deeply hurtful and harmful and, and not right at all. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, but then again, if you bounce back to, to, to how I was thinking versus how I was actually living, when Madiba came out, I, I thought this was a wonderful occasion. You know? I, I don't think I appreciated it at the level that the average black person would have appreciated it, but I, I thought this was wonderful. I remember us being very happy in our household and seeing it as a momentous thing. Um, and another thing, another incident that really touched me was, uh, for, for, some, for personal reasons as well, was um, Josiah Togwani. I don't know if you, if you remember that name. Yeah, he... Yeah. he he won the Olympic gold in the marathon in 96, I think it was. Now, he has a coal miner. Um, I don't even think he, he was a coal miner. I think he was a janitor on the mines, um, an illiterate guy. Um, my, it had special interest for me for, because my dad was actually commentating for the SABC and he commentated on that race. And so I was listening to my father's voice coming from Atlanta, sitting at home, as, as Josiah won. And he told my dad told me afterwards that that like uh, you know he he was green as an athlete like he just he didn't know what was 
sort of the, the, the momentous nature of the occasion. He said to the other guys um, on the team uh, that, like, this isn't a big race. There's only like 150 athletes. You know, what's, what's the big fuss? I only have to beat 149 other guys. Um, and then he did. It didn't matter that those 149 guys were the best athletes in the world. And I just remember like having, you know, t- tears coming down my face when he won. Um, it was a massive moment for us. And I felt that he had represented us so proudly. And I don't know why, but I felt that that was, you know, um, a victory for us as a nation. I can't really put my finger on it. Um, going through my 20s, I'm just living self-absorbed, completely self-absorbed life, not really interested in uh, um, what's going on around me, socially, yeah. politically, uh, um, enjoying my upper, upper middle class life. Uh, but at that time, similar to you, I get converted. Um, I go into a, I follow a girl into a Presbyterian church um, for all the wrong reasons, and I hear about my brokenness in that church, and I hear, I hear that the problem with the world is that it is broken, but that that problem isn't only out there, it's in here, it's inside. And um, that for me was a, was a revolution because it just resonated with the truth. I knew that there was stuff wrong with me, and I've been describing some of that stuff. Um, Everything we were hearing in our politics classes and our economics classes and our philosophy classes said the problems out there with that particular group. It's this group or that group. And if we can put that group to one side, if we can marginalize this group, or we can overthrow that group, we'll solve the problem. No one ever said the problem starts at home. And that was the first time I heard that. And, and it woke me up to my sin. So now you encounter Jesus, you encounter him in all his purity. You start feeling your own filth, you know. And one of the things I started to see was my own racism and the racism around me in my culture, you know, this, this rotting culture. Um, uh, so, so to just to keep going with the story, I, you know, I, do, I spend some time traveling, I come back to South Africa, I study a bit more, I get a job in government where all my colleagues are black. Uh, I really was, in my first job, I was like the only white guy on the team um, but I had a very positive experience. Everybody treated me. Uh, they didn't treat me, I guess, how I deserved to be treated in the sense of being uh, white and carrying all of that historical baggage. They just treated me as a person, and it was a very positive experience. Um, uh, at this time, the Lord's working in my heart, and I'm growing in my faith. I end up at Bible college by some miracle that I won't uh, uh, recount now. But again, at Bible College, uh, we have this legendary professor there, um, a guy by the name of John Child, who anyone who's ever been to GWC will know about. And he took us on a deep dive into race and race issues and the gospel. And uh, the thing that struck me, uh, you know, we watched Cry Freedom, which is the Steve Biko story, um, and, and other movies like that. And, and we read lots of articles and we had lots of class discussions. And the thing that really struck me were the class discussions because in those discussions, when my black brothers and sisters spoke, I heard a level of hurt that I was oh, totally God. naive to. And, and these were younger black people. And I, I had kind of been operating under the assumption that we're healing, you know, the generation who really bore the pain, uh, 
um, they they seem to be coming to terms with it, and we it was a kind of an unspoken assumption that is that is that things are really improving and it's 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 much better now. When I heard that hurt, it was a major correction for me. I was like, wow, this thing is still it's still with us in a massive massive way, and I and I and I heard how deep the wounds were. Sure. Um, and that was a real eye-opener for me. I remember Musa Ntinga, who's our, our pastor at, at uh, Soweto Community Church. Um, I remember him. It is Soweto Community. Yeah, that, that is what they called it, I think. Uh, I think it's Christ Central Soweto. Christ Central Soweto. That's it. That's it. Um, he, so I was a postgrad student, and he was, he was just coming into college, but we were in fellowship group together. And um, I remember him just sharing, there was some horrible, you know, like that, that cycle that we were talking about earlier. There was some horrible racial incident that had blown up in the media and everybody was doing, chasing their tails again, as we usually do. And we were just standing in the, in the courtyard having a chat about it. And he described it to me like this. He said, it's like, in his experience, it's like, um, it's like you've been raped and now you're forced to live in the same house with your rapist. That's wow. how he described it to me. And I was just like, wow, that is, uh, that's really something. You know, it just, it just woke me up to the level of trauma that people are trying to process. Um, and I had kind of, again, I was kind of operating under the assumption, no, no, it's, you know, it's, it's getting better. It's, it's much better than it was. And in some ways it is, but, but those wounds don't just disappear, you know, uh, you can't just ask people to get over it, which we've heard many times in our culture. Um, and and that was just that that just drove it home for me. It's like, oh, this is a profound level of hurt that I'm clearly not understanding. Um, so so we finish up uh, at Bible College and then we move back to Midrand. Now you must understand, I've grown up in in the burbs proper, right? So nor- northern suburbs, Joburg, went to uh, Stellenbosch University. Um, uh, then went to southern suburbs Cape Town for seminary so I've never really lived in a properly integrated community like um, like Midrand is I would say Midrand I don't know this exact statistics but I would I would hazard a guess that Midrand is majority black if you just looked at the demographic breakdown Um, it's the first time I'm living in a neighborhood like that so so I go to I go to pick and pay for the first time and it just dawns on me, I'm the only white guy in this shop. And I feel that level of self-consciousness like that I, that I think many black people must feel when they go into some sort of white space. Um, yeah. I feel like eyes are just burning a hole in my back, you know, and I feel like I, I'm, I'm an offense, you know. No one even cares. I mean, people are just, you know, getting their cheese or whatever. They don't, you know, no one even bats an eyelid and and now it's totally normal but but I remember that first experience being a real kind of waking up to the fact that I'm a minority in this country and that's the reality right um, but I, because I've always lived in the burbs I've kind of thought of South Africa differently um, so so it was just having a correction to as to actually what are the demographics in this country well it's majority black and 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 you want a very few and 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 it's been similar with the schools. So our kids moved from schools where they were in the vast majority, maybe one or two kids of color. Now 
maybe five out of 25 or so are, you know, are, are white kids. And it's so, it's a gift. So when we go away with other white families, they will often comment on our boys having an accent. They speak with an accent, you know, um, and they, and they, uh, they use words that, that the other white kids don't, that they've picked up on the playground from all their black mates that the other white kids don't, don't, they don't even know what they're talking about. So, which I think is, is a gift to them because that's what this country is. Right? So, so they need to be able to interact with everybody and everybody is not just your white mates from the burbs. You know, that's not everybody. Um, and, and, and it's kind of a, uh, um, an awakening for, for white people to actually realize that. Um, so, uh, yeah, um, just, just, Speaking about the kids, uh, seeing the the legacy of the past through their eyes, because kids are just honest and they're not politically correct, and they just say what's on their hearts and their minds, you know. So, so I remember we were driving through the trans. We were going on holiday, and we were driving through the trans sky. And my daughter, she was small then, uh, but she says, "Dad, how come?" How come all the brown-skinned people work in the fields and all the white-skinned people go on holidays? Yeah. And it was just, a, it's a huge insight, you know. Um, yeah. It's a very similar conversation with, with uh, my second-born. We pull up at a forecourt just to fill up with petrol. And he goes, now this is years later. Um, Dad, how come, how come the brown skin people put the petrol into the car and the white skin people are driving the cars. Yeah. You know, so they see that they're just seeing the what's there, but we don't see it anymore. You know, ah. we just take it for granted. Like I've never seen a white person at a forecourt. Maybe they're there. Ah. I'm sure they're there somewhere, but, but that's, and that's kind of demographically skewed right so there should be i don't know what are we uh, maybe 20 percent of the population if it wasn't if they had never been in apartheid 20 percent of the people working at the forecourt would be white you would see them but they're not right and kids pick up on these things because they're looking at the world with fresh eyes mm. um yeah and many comments like that eh? it's been striking over the years to to see our society through their eyes because they see it uh, they see it afresh they don't. Uh, they don't have all of our blind spots. Um, just we're going to do a whole episode on the church, but 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 I've you know I've seen racism in the church. Um, uh, um, I've dealt with with white racism in the church and and had to interact with that. Uh, I myself have been accused of racism twice. Um, I'll talk about that a little bit more, but. Um, you know, it's alive and well in the church. So we mustn't live under that illusion, like that the church is one thing and the culture is another thing. Certainly the church is better, in my view. Um, and Christ makes all the difference in the world. But of course, there's residual sin, right? So, so we can't harbor any illusions about, no, no, we've arrived, because we certainly haven't. Um, and we'll do, we'll, 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 we'll take some time to really explore that theme in one of the later episodes. If I, if I try and kind of pull all the strands together, um, it's, it's going back to what we said earlier. You kind of, in, in your own life and, in the, and, in, and in the public life of this country, we kind of 
lurch from crisis to crisis when it comes to race issues. Um, I look at all these incidents, just these few examples in my own life. Um, and otherwise, you kind of, at least from my perspective, have been oblivious and not really sensitive to the fact that this is people's lived realities every single day. Um, and, and it can get discouraging at times. You know, there have been, we were talking earlier off air, so to speak, um, about times when I felt I should immigrate and not out of some kind of white rant. No, you know, the country's going to hell in a handbag because of this government, you know, because they, they have messed it up. Um, not that at all. It's just sometimes you get the feeling like my presence is so painful to people uh, that 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 I'm I, you wonder what what good am I doing here? Uh, but I think those are are weaker moments. Those are moments of discouragement. I think I think whenever we whenever we return to the gospel. And whenever we um, go back to those core truths that you were mentioning, the Imago Dei, um, the fact that that there's sin in all of us, but Christ redeems all of us, um, the fact that the cross is 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 more powerful than even apartheid was, um, sure. the fact you know those those core truths, the fact that we're all going to be together in glory, and and we're going to be laughing and and crying and dancing and, and just um, um, rejoicing that it's all over and, and that we don't have to have these sorts of conversations anymore together, black and white together. That's the Bible's crystal clear on that, you know. Those truths um, in my better moments when I'm thinking lucidly, uh, though that is the truth, right? My discouragement is not the truth. My discouragement is, a, is an emotion um, that, I, that I feel uh, – you know, because it's a very emotive topic and, and we do get discouraged from time to time. But uh, but when I reflect on the truth, and I do that in community with you, with guys on staff, with, with our church, our, our beautiful church family, when we do that together uh, and, and, I, and I see that we are one in Christ, that is the truth, right? Um, and, that's, and that's why we're having this conversation um, because we want to remind people of that truth and we want to go back to that truth and we want to press deeper into that truth um, and, and hold our sin in all its ugliness up to the light of that truth. Um, anyway, I've said enough. I think that's, that's pretty much my story. Yeah, bro, bro, two questions from me, um, just in light of everything you said. I think one, just um, so, so when you feel like you need to leave, um, and immigrate, obviously, because you feel like your presence is a reminder of people's pain. Um, is there any temptation where you you hate your, yourself? And to, do you hate your race um, and struggle with, with your whiteness in those moments? And, and I ask because I've, I've seen that play itself out um, where in, 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 in attempts to try and be helpful, um, so saying, you know, like, for example, I, I should leave because I think that will be helpful for people's healing. I shouldn't be around. I, I remind people of their scars. Then there's just an internal oppression or hatred towards oneself. And it's I've seen it in, in some of my white friends. Mm. So I just wanted to know if you, you struggle with that in those moments. 
Oh, Black, sorry, you muted. You muted yourself somehow. Um, in, in, in white people's intimate spaces. Um, you know, that, that only happened for me when I actually became a Christian. Mm. And, and, it's, and I think, and I thank God it only happened when I was a Christian. Uh, because then I came into your house with, with fresh eyes and just with, with the gospel gov- governing my heart. So even if, even if I would pick up anything that I think was slightly racist, I would try and filter it through that. Because again, we all struggle from racism. Um, but, but, but the question that I'm getting to is, um, did you have a similar experience where growing up you were never in black people's um, intimate spaces and, and, and post-conversion, were you in peop- black people's private spaces? Have you been to a black funeral, a black wedding, black party? Um, and if so, how, how was it? If, if, if not, how, how's the gospel informing, just forming those relationships there? Yeah. Yeah, those are good questions, man. Um, I think the first one, I I personally, so I understand the struggle. I mean, I hate what white people have done. Uh, and, but but at, at the same time, I think, I think my understanding of God's providence is that he made me white. And, um, and, and so I don't, I don't struggle as much with, with being white. And, and I don't think there's something inherently evil about being white. Um, I, think, I think white people certainly abused, uh, well, they, they, yeah, I mean, there's a whole history of, of what white people have done in this country that, that um, is, leaves very little to admire. Um, and I, 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 it's very hard to separate yourself from that. Um, mm. but I, like you, I don't think that it was a mistake that I'm white. And when I, when I'm in those moments of deep discouragement about staying or going, it's more wrestling with, with on the one hand, feeling like I'm not sure I can do anything positive in this space because, because I am just a reminder of all of that history, right? Um, sure. And sometimes I'm a perpetuator of that because, because I, I react with prejudice or, or racism. Or, you know, the, the, you know s- supremacy is a subtle thing. Like sometimes you can't even see that you are operating under the assumption that uh, my culture is superior and my upbringing is superior and, and everything about me is superior. You would never say that. You would never articulate it. You would, it sneaks up on you. So... Um, so I think to myself in those moments, what's the good of being here? And then I think again on God's providence and, and I say, well, he's put me here and I am here. And, and until it's very obvious otherwise, to, you know, um, sometimes when I listen to Julius, I think it is obvious that I should go. But until, until, until my black brothers and sisters in Christ are saying, listen, we need space uh, and and I don't anticipate you guys ever saying that. Um, it seems to me that it's part of the gospel working itself out and God showing us his glory and showing us that even this terrible thing that has happened can be healed in community under the cross. 
and that's why I feel like I stay. So, so I, I, you know, I guess my struggle, you know, like you said earlier, it's all nuanced and everybody's experience is different. And I understand when people, when white people are struggling with, with their identity, but, but, but I don't struggle with that so much as, uh, um, the doubts about whether being here is useful uh, or helpful yeah. to anybody. That's, that's mainly the nature of my struggle. The second one is I don't feel like I've been in enough black spaces. It's been so much better since I became a Christian. Uh, but yeah. growing up, there was very little, you know, black people had to come into my space with my yeah. permission, kind of, you know, that's how it worked. Um, and but but since I've become a Christian, it's gotten a lot better, um, and I've gotten to know black people a lot better. We we've had many 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 black families in our home. Um, I think there's a hesitance to reciprocate one because I'm the pastor or whatever, and two I think maybe there's some sort of cultural thing going on there. I don't I don't know a hundred percent why we haven't had a lot of return invitations is what I'm saying. Um, but that's okay. Like, uh, you know, it's not something that I worry too much about. Um, I think we'll get there, you know. At some point, black people will feel comfortable to invite me into their home, and a few have. Uh, and it's yeah. been wonderful to to go and break bread with uh, black people in their space, you know, uh, as a guest, right? Um, so... So it's been so much richer since the, it's not anywhere near where it should be, but the gospel's yeah. made all the difference. Like, and, and, and working shoulder to shoulder with black people's made a massive difference, um, both in government and, and, and now in the church. Um, and so, yeah, I, I just think the gospel has, has really, uh, um, in this area, God has demonstrated his power. Uh, for me, because I see a massive transition. I see a kind of a before, a clear before and after in terms of my uh, um, desire to get to know black people in their spaces and to get to know them for who they are. Um, yeah, so I hope that answers the question. Yeah, no, it does, bro. Um, and I think I think it does speak to, um, I don't think it's a coincidence that we both um, experience some form of of intimacy with each other's cultures when we became Christians. Mm. I, I think it just speaks to the power of what God is doing in the world. Mm. Um, and I've, 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 I've obviously shared my, my opinions of how I think generally, and again, not all black people, but generally how black people view black Christians. Um, and, 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 and so I think there's probably a number of times when I was speaking or where you were speaking, and and my 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 black light bulb, if I should call it that, went off because I'm like, ah, oh, here here's a moment where I can be considered a sellout. I can be considered as um, as as somebody who who got blinded by by the white religion of the white god, and and listen to how I'm I'm sounding now. Uh, it's 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 as though I'm, I'm abandoning my blackness just for the sake of of reconciliation and. And we 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 we're gonna forget all the hurts and 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 we haven't said any of that, you know. But I think in some of the language, uh, people would assume that. And and for me, the point that I'm making there is, I'm super grateful that it's only when I understood the gospel and clearly from your experience as well mm -hmm. that that we we could appreciate each other 
um, at, a, at a genuine level, level, and I think it's a real one and an eternal one. Um, I think it was C.S. Lewis who said that um, um, every, everything on earth is not good. Um, it's only good when it looks to Jesus, I'm paraphrasing. It's only good when it looks to Jesus, and it's only bad when it turns its back away from Jesus. Mm, mm. You know? so, so for me, that statement just, yeah, embodies just our experience. Ah, mm. oh, right, you need me to begin. Somebody was calling me, yeah. So my, oh. my being in, in an intimate space, or your, your, your intimate spaces, um, became good because I looked to Jesus. You mm. know, that experience informed by by Christ mm. um, and, and God in eternity considers that as, as a good thing I didn't do it just so that I could I could say hey look at us we've reconciled but um, I, I think it's it genuinely comes from a transformed heart and it's lived in light of eternity um, if, if Jesus says that he gives us life and life ab- abundant I'm like yeah that's I can see that in, in mm. our experiences how we come together mm. so I think I'm super encouraged um, just by by that, you know, and and again, I said it to you, and I'll say it here publicly. If if, if I'm considered a sellout, yo, at least God doesn't, and that's what matters. Mm. That's the opinion mm. that matters, you mm. know, the the picture picture and revelation of 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 all people from all tribes, all languages coming together. If I'm gonna be considered a sellout for that, yo, go ahead, like mm. I'd, I'd sell out that truth to that. It's not a dream. It's it's a reality, and we living it now um, before it's fully actualized. This side of this, the other side of heaven, you know. So I'm like, yeah, hundreds. I'm I'm more encouraged to to stand side um, by your side and call you a brother genuinely, um, because we in an eternal family together, you know, and mm. we share the same father. Mm. And for me, that's yeah, that's more glorious than anything else, man. Mm. Mm. I mean, just parting shot from me uh, before, maybe before you introduce the next episode, um, is just piggybacking off of that because I think that that is such a profound place to leave it, actually. But just to say, it's clear from my experience that the politics isn't enough, right? Yeah. So, so we can have all the right politics, but but what you're describing is uh, brotherhood at the level of being, um, not brotherhood at the level of ideology or political positioning uh, and it's a much more profound thing that we're talking about um, and it was certainly my experience because I had all the politics in the world right my politics were squared away my my father made sure of that but but it didn't stop the racism in my heart uh, only Jesus could do that and sure. and uh, and so that's what you're describing so I say amen to that sure no that's good man this was good bro very good yeah, I really appreciate it, man. And for the church family, as as you're watching this and just, yeah, uh, making sense of all of this, we, we do pray that that you are encouraged. We do pray that there's there's a level of um, a conversation that's going to start. If it hasn't, if, if it has, we hope that this furthers the, uh, the conversation. I think, again, like Royden said, we don't want to just wait for the media to dictate um, how we speak about any matter, in fact. Um, the gospel compels us to to always be speaking about all of life because it it affects of it affects all of life. Um, so so with that said, we're gonna end this episode. But next episode that we're gonna be doing, um, we we're gonna just be speaking about 
um, how this particular uh, thing that we're doing, the series, uh, started. And obviously, it was off the back of uh, the unfortunate and very brutal death of George Floyd. And just the, the, the whole, uh, I mean, it wasn't even a rise by then, but just how Black Lives Matter um, became a very big conversation. Um, and so we, we wanted to just chat about that and then um, speak about what that means for us um, at CCM, but also what it means for us as South Africans, black, white, Asian, colored, Indian, uh, what that actually means for us in this country. So yeah, hopefully you'll, you'll come around for that and we'll continue the conversation together. Brother, do you, do you want to pray for us? Yeah, let me do this. Let me do that. Uh, Father, these uh, have been two stories, and there's so many stories of your incredible grace to us. Uh, and we see in the particular details um, the, the beauty and the magnitude of your plan for all of history and for us here in South Africa. Sometimes it seems impossible that we're going to move forward together, but um, we know that in Christ, having heard these stories and and knowing that they are one of uh, two of two of many many similar stories um we praise you father that uh that you've demonstrated once again that that you intend to have a people for yourself and you draw people from every type tribe and tongue and people and nation uh we're so grateful to you father we're grateful for your work in our lives. We're grateful for your work in our church. Please use this face-to-face -face on race uh, to do um, for the extension of your kingdom, Lord, to do this important gospel work, uh, to work it into the soil of, of who we are as a, a family of believers. Uh, so we commit it all to you, and uh, we ask that you use it for your glory. Amen. 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 All right, bro.